Father in heaven, how grateful we are that in this camp meeting time we can study your word. And we ask that you make your word clear and that you give us a heart to love your word. Give us a surrendered spirit to obey your word. Father, we thank you for your promises. We trust you completely. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The song says we are living, we are dwelling in a grand and awful time. In an age of ages telling to be living is sublime. Hark, the waking up of nations, Gog and Magog to the fray. Hark, what soundeth? Is creation groaning for her latter day? From around the world, the reports are live streaming in. The Middle East, Europe, China, North Korea. The nations are wakening and marshalling for war. In the United Kingdom last year, more people died from antibiotic-resistant infections than they did from breast cancer. And the problem is growing. Creation is groaning for her latter day. I do not have time to compare with you Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and Revelation 6, which gives the parallel prophecies of the events leading up to the second coming. But Luke alone gives the last sign, the very last sign to precede the second coming of Christ. Terror. Men's hearts failing them for fear. And the expectation of these things, those things which are coming on the earth. Satan is the great terrorist. And terrorism has now been unleashed worldwide. Re Review and Herald, June 23, 1896, tells us we should study the great waymarks that point out the times in which we are living. We know that we are very near the close of this earth's history. We should now pray most earnestly that we may be prepared for the struggles of the great day of God's preparation. Although you each here are well aware of, the, of a few of the events that I'm going to tick off here, let me briefly review them to point out the times in which we are living. I want to start by reviewing a few civil waymarks that you all know well. Jesus likened the period at the end of time to the days of Lot and Sodom. 2015 was a pivotal year in the United States. It was a transition year, a watershed year, as we'll see in a moment. Ignoring science, common sense, health and social consequences, a sharply divided Supreme Court shredded the Constitution, bypassed the representative voting process, and declared that perversion between male and, and uh, male, or female and female, was marriage. Since that time, the LGBTQ movement has accelerated, and there is pressure on legislature to make unisex bathrooms the standard. Despite the fact that it meant combat requirements were lowered, and the military's own studies showed that it reduced the fighting effectiveness of troops, 
The Defense Secretary Ashton Carter at that time made the historic announcement that all U.S. combat military positions would open up to women. Military uniforms and hats are now unisex. Every attempt has been made to obliterate the obvious differences between men and women. Both major political parties have embraced the LGBTQ agenda. And in an unprecedented and widely applauded event in 2015, the Pope addressed a joint session of Congress. In 2015, Pope Francis published an encyclical on climate change and the world signed a historic agreement with the Pope's prodding. He sees heads of state and heads of the largest corporations. Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, just gave the graduation talk to MIT 10, 10 days ago. And in this talk at MIT, he said, last year I had the chance to meet Pope Francis. It was the most incredible meeting of my life. He expressed a shared concern in a powerful new way. All the world marveled is in the process of fulfillment. Two years ago, a much less publicized event occurred with the Catholic Charismatic Conference in Rome. For the first time, this was the Catholic Charismatic Movement officially blessed by a pope who addressed the group. The pope did not encourage them to study their Bible deeply. He encouraged them to carry the New Testament around in their pockets and read a little piece. A handful of leading and prominent Protestants from the United States were invited as guests to the event to celebrate the Mass, to have an audience with the Pope, and to meet with other Catholic officials. They were specifically invited to discuss the question, can we find common cause in order to advance the life and ministry of Jesus so more people can experience the joy of Christian faith? Do you believe that Catholics and Protestants can find a common ground? Do you think the Catholic Church knows the answer to its own question? Can you hear in the question that was discussed in Rome by leaders and spokesmen of varying denominations the echoes of prophecy? Would you like to understand exactly how the image of the beast begins to be formed. It's a three-step process. This is step one, Great Controversy 445, when the leading churches of the United States uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common. This is where the image to the beast begins. You can never have the union of church and state which we're looking for, but we're looking for it prematurely, you can't have church and state united before you have church and church united. We first have the union of church with church. And the year 2015 was a pivotal year, as we saw. But the year 2017, our year, is a significant one. This is the 500th anniversary of Luther's nailing his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church door in October 31. Lutheran Bishop James Hazelwood and Catholic Archbishop and Cardinal 
Sheen O'Malley are marking the 500th anniversary by pushing for unity and collaboration between Lutherans and Catholics. Now, how are they going to encourage collaboration between Lutherans and Catholics? Here's the plan. They're encouraging the Catholics and the Lutherans to commemorate the Reformation by reading the Bible? No, by reading the Pope Francis's encyclical on climate change this year. October 31, 2016, on the 499th anniversary, Archbishop Anche Jacqueline, primate of the Church of Sweden, and Pope Francis held an ecumenical service in Uppsala, Sweden. In nine days, nine days from today, June 28, Anders Arborelis will become the first ever cardinal of Sweden. This is union. But it doesn't stop there. Step two and three follow quickly. They'll unite on points of doctrine held by them in common, and then they shall influence the state to enforce their decrees. Now, how do states enforce church decrees? civil laws, and to sustain their institutions. That's the third step. How do states raise money to give to institutions? Taxation. So what is the union of church and state? The state enforcing church laws and the state taxing its citizens to support the church. This means that compliance with church rules will no longer be voluntary and support of church functions will no longer be voluntary. When this happens, then Protestant America will have done what? Can you read it with me? Formed an image of the Roman hierarchy. What is the image? The image is doctrinal unity in Sunday worship, civil laws enforcing uniformity in Sunday worship, and taxation sustaining conformity to Sunday worship. The unholy trinity of church union with compulsory church rules and compulsory church taxes are the essence of the beast of Rome. And when these are adopted by the United States, a mirror image of the beast will emerge in Washington. And the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. So let's review this three-step process to the mark of the beast. Doctrinal unity, laws enforcing church doctrine, taxation for religious institutions resulting in a loss of freedom, religious freedom, and civil persecution. Let's say it another way. The three principles that are the essence of the beast of Rome are Sunday keeping, Sunday laws, and access to tax money. The adoption of these three principles leads to papal persecution. As these same principles are adopted by the United States, a mirror image of the beast will emerge in Washington. And the infliction 
of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. But permit me to fill out a few more details before we move on. To secure such a union, page 444, the discussion of subjects upon which all were not agreed, however important they might be from a Bible standpoint, must necessarily be what? Be waived. You'll know the answer to the next question. Is there any topic that virtually all Christians agree on? Virtually every denomination rejects the seventh-day Sabbath in honor of God's law. They believe and teach that worship should be on Sunday in honor of Christ's resurrection. And they incorrectly refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day. Because they believe in Sunday unitedly, what will be the topic foremost in religious discussions in the process of uniting churches? Sunday. So that the churches can unite on Sunday, other topics will need to be avoided. Third volume of Selected Messages 392. In the warfare to be waged in the last days, there will be united in opposition to God's people all the corrupt powers that have apostatized from the allegiance to the law of Jehovah. In this warfare, the Sabbath of the fourth commandment will be the great point at issue. The Catholic Church is reaching out its hand to Protestants. Will Protestants spurn that hand? But wait, there's more. The religion of spiritualism, the religion of mediums and and, uh, seances, has been evolving. The most successful spiritualist congregations consider themselves Christian. The spiritualist worship services have adopted Catholic, Protestant, and charismatic worship service forms. They have hymns. They have healing services. They have preaching. Do spiritualists, too, hold something in common with Catholics and Protestants? All three believe in the immortality of the soul. However, that is not sufficient to unite them. That simply makes Catholics and Protestants vulnerable to spiritualist deceptions. But notice what will unite them. Page 588, Great Controversy. Through the agency of spiritualism, what will be wrought? Miracles will be wrought, the sick will be healed, and many undeniable wonders will be performed. And as the spirits will profess faith in the Bible and manifest respect for the institutions of the church, their work will be accepted as a manifestation of divine power. What unites them? Miracles, healings, undeniable wonders. Second, profession of faith in the Bible And third, manifest respect for church institutions. What unites Catholics and Protestants? A common belief in Sunday worship. What unites Catholics, Protestants, and Spiritualists? 588 continues, Papists, who boast of miracles as a sign, a certain sign of the true church, will be readily deceived by this wonder-working power in Protestants, having cast away the shield of truth will also be deluded. Papists, Protestants. Let me stop right there.
we expect papists and Protestants to link with spiritualists. These three groups are organized. But there is a fourth group, perhaps much bigger than papists, Protestants, and spiritualists combined. This is the image to the beast's mixed multitude. Papists, Protestants, and worldlings. What, who are worldlings? Councils on Health, page 280, tells us they are servants of the world, not servants of God, eager and ambitious to follow its fashions in extravagant dress and in the gratification of appetite. Worldlings are servants of the world. Their words and actions are not governed by the instruction of God's word. They order their life around the maxims, customs, and demands of culture. What is a Catholic? A Catholic is someone who follows the teachings of the Catholic Church. What is a Protestant? A Protestant is an individual who follows the teachings of his Protestant Church. What is a spiritualist? That is a person who follows the teachings of spirits purporting to be the spirits of the dead. What is a worldling? Anyone who follows the dictates of the majority around him. This person follows the trends and fashions. This is the person who is an echo of the media. He knows what the world says, but does not know what the Word says. He is familiar with the world's heroes, but unfamiliar with Bible heroes. Worldlings are committed to worldly causes, social causes, environmental causes. A worldling is not involved in the... A worldling is involved in the political causes of the day. A Christian cannot be, for Christ has said his kingdom is not of this world. A worldling may be a member and attend Catholic Mass, if it is sufficiently popular and convenient, but he's not committed to Catholicism. A worldling may be a member of a Protestant church and attend on Sunday, if it's sufficiently entertaining and not inconvenient or popular, but he's not committed to Protestantism. Dare I say it? Dare I not say it? A worldling may be a baptized Seventh-day Adventist and attend on Sabbath, but he is not fully surrendered to every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Worldlings are the masses of humanity. If worldlings support something, it's wildly popular. Catholics, Protestants, and spiritualists provide the organizational support for unity, but worldlings provide the multitudes and the media support. And the unity of Catholics, Protestants, spiritualists, and worldlings reveals that they were never separate, never really different to begin with. Papists, Protestants, and worldlings will alike accept the form of godliness without the power. And they will see in this union a grand movement for the conversion of the world and the ushering in of the long-expected millennium. But we need to notice another word in this paragraph. Power. Wonder-working power can unite people. Ancient histories of the early church tell about Simon Magus. The demons would pick him up and levitate him. He would fly. The New Testament tells of the effect of the miracles of Simon Magus on the people of Samaria, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. 
In time, Simon Magus's will perform such miracles that multitudes from the least to the greatest will be deceived. Papists will be readily deceived by this wonder-working power, and Protestants will also be deluded. What will Catholics see? Wonder-working power with healings. What will apostate Protestants see? Wonder-working power with healings. What will the worldling see? Wonder-working power with healing. But how does the Bible describe this final revival that unites Catholics, Protestants, spiritualists, and worldlings by its wonder-working power? As being without power. Papists, Protestants, and worldlings will alike accept the form of godliness without the power of godliness. Catholics see wonder-working power. Apostate Protestants see wonder-working power. Spiritualists see wonder-working power. Worldlings see wonder-working power. The Bible, however, sees no power whatsoever. We must be able to differentiate the true power, which is from heaven, the only real power, from counterfeit wonders that will fool nearly all. But worldlings, Catholics and Protestants, will make lies their refuge, as Isaiah 28.15 tells us. Volume 5, page 451, when Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, when under the influence of this threefold union, you see you first have the union, then you have uh, church-state union, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions. And the word propagation means to spread and promote widely. This is where we get the word propaganda. There is quickly coming a time when the United States laws and the United States dollars will be utilized to widely spread and promote Catholic dogma. Then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. All around us are the events foretold in prophecy. We are living, we are dwelling in a grand and awful time. We are living the closing scenes of the earth's history. Uh, the 18th uh, volume of the manuscript releases, page 358. Like a lion sneaking up on its prey, quietly downwind, slowly, just so. Desire of Ages tells us the crisis is stealing gradually upon us. But it doesn't stay slow and gradual forever. There comes a moment when the lion is no longer quiet. There comes a moment when a lion is no longer moving gradually. There comes a moment when the lion roars and makes a sudden and violent attack. 9-11, great changes are soon to take place in our world and the final movements will be rapid ones. We should note that the end will not be gradual, 
It will be sudden, unexpected, and climactic. You'll hear people say we're in the final rapid movement. We're not, folk, but they're about to spring on us. The stealth is about to be uncovered. The lion is about to attack. There will be a change. There will be a sudden and unexpected attack. And we have little dream of the frosty in the days ahead of us. Great pains, fundamentals of education, 335. Great pains should be taken to keep this subject before the people. The solemn fact is to be kept not only before the people of the world, but what is the next uh, phrase? But what? Before our own churches also. That the day of the Lord will come suddenly, unexpectedly. The fearful warning of the prophecy is addressed to every soul. Let no one feel that he is secure from the danger of being surprised. You don't have to go to Rome to see prophecy being fulfilled. While our eyes are busily scanning the horizons for signs in the distance, there is a sign right under our nose. Are we clasping the hands with the world? Are we reaching our hands across the abyss? Have we adopted an ecumenical approach to the world? Great Controversy 588. The line of distinction between professed Christians and the ungodly is now hardly distinguishable. Church members love what the world loves and are ready to join with them. I'm concerned when the Roman hand of friendship is stretched out by the leading Protestants, but I'm more concerned that the beckoning hand of the world is stretched out for me to grasp. Am I reaching across this abyss? Multitudes of Christians are doing this, and it too is a sign of the end. Knowing the time, Paul said, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Never forget that the world's hand stretched out in apparent friendliness is ready to slap you if you refuse the gesture. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Eric Walsh is a committed Seventh-day Adventist. He's a graduate of Oakwood College and Loma Linda University School of Medicine. He's an excellent speaker. He was highly regarded and was on the short list of candidates to be Surgeon General of the United States. In 2010, he was hired as Pasadena's public health director. He remained active in his local Adventist church. In fact, he functioned as a volunteer associate pastor. He was invited to speak all over the world. Pasadena City College is a liberal arts college in Pasadena. It was under some community pressure for having classes which required watching pornographic movies. When openly gay screenwriter Dustin Lance Black was invited to be the commencement speaker, speaker that spring pornographic YouTubes of Dustin Blank Black were circulated and another community outcry was raised. The board of trustees canceled Mr. Black's invitation, but Mr. Black asked the students to pressure administration to reinstate his commencement address. 
Eric Welch was asked to take Mr. Black's place as commencement speaker, and students went through Dr. Welch's sermons online. In one sermon, on audio verse, Dr. Welch had used the Bible and its clear separation of genders, men and women, its clear teaching on marriage between men and women to make a point on the danger the church faces when it uses the expression without regard to gender. If it's when it's discussing ordination. Dr. Walsh was in a unique position to understand this as he had pioneered an HIV clinic in Pasadena, a free clinic that he administered and started. The expression without regard to gender is an expression that those who believe there are many genders, not just male and female, use. From his sermons, these students took out a comment here, a comment there, and placed them in their most extreme setting. As a result, not only was Eric Walsh disinvited, but he was fired from his job and had great difficulty finding a new job. He was hired in my own state in uh, Georgia, but his detractors discovered it and they got him fired there before he could even begin. He just won a lawsuit, but a uh, very difficult time. Furthermore, although his local church supported him, as disappointing as it sounds, his alma mater, Loma Linda, his local conference, his local union, our own North American division, and even the general conference legal department declined to support him, distancing themselves from him. But you see, God allows these things for our good. Just as Paul said, all, everyone left him. He was alone. Just as Jesus' disciples left him and he was alone, so in this time, God wanted Dr. Welsh to learn that all he needed was Jesus. And dear folk, God wants us to learn that same precious lesson. God overruled this for his good, and in his extremity, he told me how he learned in a deeper way to trust in God alone. These are storm warnings of coming events. This is a preview of the opportunity, privilege, and high honor that God will soon be giving his children. But in these experiences, we will learn the great lesson of how to trust Jesus. We're not ignorant of Satan's devices. Satan's twofold approach is enticement on the one hand, coupled with threats on the other. And that brings us to the paragraph that will be the focus of this morning, tomorrow, and uh, Wednesday, the Lord willing. Great Controversy 593, paragraph 2. Those who endeavor to obey all the commandments of God will be opposed and derided. This paragraph originally appeared in volume 4 of the Spirit of Prophecy, page 411. It adds an interesting clause. Their way will be made very hard. One of the first visions God gave Ellen White was the future opposition she would face in accepting God's assignment. This is the same message she received. It is no different for us if we accept God's assignment. God doesn't want us surprised by opposition, derision, and hardship. This is the distinguishing badge of honor that God grants commandment keepers. 
Troublous Times. Um, Spalding and Mulcan Collection, 370. Troublous times are before us. In many instances, friends will become alienated. Without cause, men will become our enemies. The motives of the people of God will be misinterpreted, not only by the world, well, what's the next phrase? But by their own brethren. The Lord's servants will be put in hard places. Who's going to be put in hard places? The Lord's servants. A mountain will be made of a molehill to justify men in pursuing a selfish, unrighteous course. The work that men have done faithfully will be disparaged and underrated because apparent prosperity does not attend their efforts, like the friends of Job who blamed him during his time of trouble. By misrepresentation, these men, that is, servants of God, will be clothed in dark vestments of dishonesty because circumstances beyond their control made their work perplexing. They will be pointed to as men that cannot be trusted. And this will be done by members of the church. How do we relate to such problems? God's servants must arm themselves with the mind of Christ Notice what church members will do to God's servants. They must not expect to escape insult and misjudgment. They will be called enthusiasts and fanatics. But let them not become discouraged. God's hands are on the wheel of His providence, guiding His work to the glory of His name. All things work together for what? Good to them who love God. And when we have the mind of Jesus, we will not feel victimized by others. We'll see even more others' need of a Christ and try to illustrate in our relationship to them how Jesus would relate in a hope that and in many cases it will result in their conversion. The Enigma machine was one great advantage the Allies had in World War II. The Germans thought this cryptographic machine was undecipherable. They thought they could send communications securely. However, in 1932, before the war broke out, the Polish had cracked the code. And at the start of the war, they gave their secrets to the British. Dwight Eisenhower later called this information decisive because the Allies often knew Germans, the Germany's military plans in advance. The Bible is our decisive weapon, for it decodes all the plans of the enemy. We need never be ignorant of his devices. Notice the quotation that will be the focus of our series. We have now seen how the first sentence has been proven true already. Let's notice the next. Those who endeavor to obey, well, let's read it again. Those who endeavor to obey all the commandments of God will be opposed and derided. They can stand only in God. In order to endure the trial before them, they must understand the will of God. But how can they know the will of God? As revealed in His Word. They can honor Him only as they have a right conception. And then she gives three things that are required a right conception of at the end of time. Number one, they can honor him only as they have a right conception of his character. 
his government and his purposes. But knowledge is not enough. It's not enough to understand God's habitual thoughts and feelings or to be able to teach a civics class on heavenly government or to comprehend the reason God allows what he allows. We can honor God only as we have a right conception of his character, government, and purposes and act in accordance with them, act on our knowledge. None but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. To every soul will come the searching test, shall I obey God rather than men? We don't need to wait for some future dramatic crisis to face this test. We face it every day. Are we going to go with the flow, follow the crowd in the way we live, in the way we eat, in the way we dress, in the way we spend our time and our money? Is the world going to determine our view of right and wrong, good and evil? Will we approve of social drinking because the world approves it? What is our standard of conduct? Will we excuse white lies? The decisive hour is even now at hand. These tests are not for some future time. They are for now. Everyone who has ever lived and died has gone through an end-of-time experience for themselves. For some, it was sudden and unexpected. For others, it was slow and painful. My mother died almost three years ago. She was nearly 98 years old. And at the end, her eyes were failing, her ears were failing, her joints were failing, and her stomach was failing. She was going through the difficulties of the end of time. She had to learn to trust Jesus in a whole new way, in a very unexpected way. She was expecting trials at the end, but she wasn't expecting those trials at the end. Are our feet planted on the rock of God's immutable word? Are we prepared to stand in defense of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus? This paragraph is one of the most important paragraphs in the entire great controversy since it exposes Satan's end-time strategy. The devil intends to frustrate and frighten us by subtle and open opposition, mockery and derision, and finally persecution. In an effort to increase the effectiveness of these attacks, he attempts to keep us from understanding the will of God by spreading misinformation about God in three critical areas his character, his government, and his purposes. Satan is constantly at work, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 78, with intense energy and under a thousand disguises to misrepresent the character and government of God. With extensive, well-organized plans and marvelous power, he is working to hold the inhabitants of the world under his deceptions. God has outlined Satan's principal methods of spreading his disinformation. Tradition, Great Controversy 492, tradition and misinterpretation have obscured the teaching of the Bible concerning the character of God, the nature of his government, and the principles of his dealing with sin. Tradition is built on the assertions of men, scholars, rabbis, religious leaders, or teachers that may be... Uh, wise and knowledgeable, but they're only men. Jesus was very good at differentiating the assertions of men from the Word of God. We too must recognize the difference between an assertion of a man and 
the plain word of God. We must dispense with tradition, beware of misinterpretation, Bible pretense, masquerading as Bible truth. God is love, and genuine love is central to his character, his government, and his purposes. So let us turn our attention first to the character of God and look at this briefly. What is character? Character is the habitual thoughts and feelings. Testimonies, volume 3, 310. When we study God's character, what are we studying? We're studying God's habitual thoughts and feelings. What are God's habitual thoughts and feelings? Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Understanding God's character is not optional. It is an essential aspect of all beings who would live eternally. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is necessary for the angels. I found a very interesting and important quotation in, in my research for this topic. Speaking of heaven before the rebellion of Satan, we are told um, in, the, in uh, 18 MR, page 360, the principles of the character of God were the foundation of the education constantly kept before the heavenly angels. Heaven is a school and the angels are its students. The character of God is their classwork. God is very intentional about the angels' continuing education coursework. From the beginning, they received instruction on the character of God. Not occasionally, not every now and then, this was their constant study. There was no part of their work or worship that did not teach them about the character of God. The principles, this quote goes on, to say the principles of the character of God were the foundation of the education constantly kept before the heavenly angels. These principles were goodness, mercy, and love. What are the principles of the character of God? Goodness, mercy, and love. And this was designed to keep them from falling. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. This is what is to be the foundation of our education here on this earth. This is to be the foundation of our children's education specifically and Adventist education in general. This is what parents are to teach children. Notice Review and Herald 9, 15, 1891. The mother is God's agent to Christianize her family. She is to exemplify biblical religion, showing how its influence is to control us in its everyday duties and pleasures, teaching her children that by grace alone can they be saved through faith, which is the gift of God. This constant teaching as to what Christ is to us and to them, his love, his goodness, his mercy revealed in the great plan of redemption will make a hallowed, sacred impress on the heart. Love, goodness, mercy. Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Jeremiah declared, it is understanding God's love that draws us to Jesus. Desire of Ages 388, those who see Christ in his true character and receive him into the heart have everlasting life. It is through the Spirit that Christ dwells in us, and the Spirit of God received into the heart by faith is the beginning of the life eternal. Can the character of God 
be misunderstood? Can his goodness, mercy, and love be taken advantage of? Though all the angels, both seraphim and cherubim, received graduate education on the character of God, which angel received the most advanced studies on God's character? Lucifer. Notice this. Desire of Ages 761. To him, that is Lucifer, as to no other created being, was given a revelation of what? God's love. Understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more that God could do to save him. We are not lost because of our sins alone. God can forgive us of our sins. We are lost because we reject such great salvation. Is God's love reasonable? Should a shepherd give his life for a sheep? Should God give his life for a human? God's only method of saving us is to teach us about his unreasonable love, his character, his great love. It's not doctrine that will save people. It's knowing the character of God. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Our job in reaching others is to teach not merely the theories of the kingdom of God. We don't want them to accept or reject theories, but present the character of God in our understanding. We do not want people to accept or reject the Sabbath, but to accept or reject the Lord of the Sabbath. And what is God's character? God has given to men, page 541 of Great Controversy, a declaration of his character and of his method of dealing with sin. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression in sin. Many stop there. This is their declaration about the character of God. And all this is true in what it affirms, but it is false in what it fails to affirm. It is not all there is to the truth. And that will by no means clear the guilty. God's love is righteousness. But you do not have love if you do not have hate. You do not love your children if you do not hate that which would harm your children. You do not love your spouse if you do not hate that which would harm your spouse. And God hates iniquity because it will harm us. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, the, uh, Paul says. Modern translations say you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. All the wicked will he destroy. The transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. The power and authority of the divine government will be employed to put down rebellion. Yet all the manifestations of retributive justice will be perfectly consistent with the character of God as a merciful, long-suffering, and benevolent being. God is just. The punishment meted out will fit the crime committed. The penalty will be exact. The pain will be precisely what is necessary for all to see that Satan got away with nothing. He reaped what he sowed. And the anguish experienced by the sinner will be the proper anguish. 
Satan seeks to have us not understand this part of the character of God. Notice how he deceived those who lived before the flood, the antediluvians. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 95. As sin became general, it appeared less and less sinful, and they finally declared that it was, read it with me, contrary to the character of God to punish transgression. This belief led them to reject the message of Noah. This belief makes countries hesitant to punish criminals. This belief leads parents to fail to properly discipline their children. It leads churches to ignore the heinous crimes committed by members. All this is done in the name of love, but it's not love. It's not God's love. It doesn't reflect on God's character. Desire of Ages, 805. On the church in its organized capacity, he, that is Christ, places a responsibility for the individual members. Toward those who fall into sin, the church has a duty to warn, to instruct, and if possible, to restore. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, the Lord says, with all long-suffering and doctrine. Deal faithfully with wrongdoing. Warn every soul that is in danger. Leave none to deceive themselves. Call sin by its right name. Declare what God has said in regard to lying, Sabbath-breaking, stealing, idolatry, and every other evil. They which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 17. I want to quickly summarize the story. Under King Jeroboam, the northern kingdom of Israel apostatized and started worshiping the golden calf. However, they retained many of the same customs and beliefs as the southern kingdom of Judah. Though God bore long with Israel because of this continued idolatry, the northern tribes were finally carried captive into the kingdom of Assyria, while other nations were carried captive and released into the northern kingdom of Israel. Those now inheriting northern Israel were pagans. And God sent lions among these pagans, and they requested the Assyrian emperor to send priests to teach them the customs of the God of Israel. One of the priests from the temple of the golden calf came to teach them about the God of Israel. And 2 Kings 17.33 tells how they listened to this priest and adopted his outward forms, but they continued worshiping their own gods. Notice what it says. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. Now, please listen to me carefully. Those who are baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist church without a complete change are like these Samaritans. They adopt certain outward forms, such as keeping the Sabbath, but retain their old way of life. They worship on Sabbath, but are otherwise indistinguishable from the world in their dress, their jewelry, their diet, their music, and they watch the same things on TV. They go to the same movies, and they want to bring these sins, their sins, into the church. If they persist in sin, Desire of Ages continues, the judgment you have declared from God's word is pronounced upon them in heaven. Either we let the Savior take away our sin or we let our sin 
take away our Savior. In choosing to sin, they disown Christ. The church must show that she does not sanction their deeds or she herself dishonors her Lord. She must say about sin what God says about it. She must deal with it as God directs and her action is ratified in heaven. He who despises the authority of the church despises the authority of Christ himself. Paul said, Romans 2.4, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Paul tells us that it is seeing the goodness of God, his character that brings us to repentance. God has no other mechanism to save us from sin. But it is not to lead us to think that we can sin and somehow escape punishment for evil. I want a character like God, don't you? A character of holy love. Because the word love has so many meanings, God has left a picture for us to study of his loving character. The law reveals the attributes of God's character. Desire of Ages, page 762. Do you want those attributes, the attributes of your character? May we never prefer a different God with a different character. Now, how do we become like Jesus? How do we become God-like in character? Patriarchs and Prophets 460, this will require earnest prayer and unceasing watchfulness. We must be aided by the abiding influence of the Holy Spirit, which will attract the mind upward and habituate it to dwell on pure and holy things. And we must give diligent study to the Word of God. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed uh, thereto according to thy word. Thy word, says the psalmist, have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Earnest prayer, unceasing watchfulness, the abiding Holy Spirit, diligent Bible study. Without these four, we're not gaining God's character to survive the present crisis. An advertisement for a television station in Norfolk, Virginia. I noticed this ad. The ad was seeking to enlist more viewers for the station's one-hour-long evening news program, and here was the ad. Give us one hour, and we'll give you the world. An advertisement for a museum, um, Smithsonian. Give us an hour, and we'll give you a hundred years. But God's ad is give me an hour and I'll give you eternity. There are some tests that are relatively easy to study for. The driver's license exam requires a little cramming and it can be passed in a few moments. But a difficult exam, such as the lawyer's bar exam or a national board exam, cannot be mastered in a few moments of study. Some require consistent study for several years. And we cannot be prepared for the final crisis without daily study and prayer. The disciples had been warned of the coming troublesome events, but they didn't expect them so soon. And they slept when they should have been praying. I don't know when the surprise is going to come, but it's going to come soon, and it will be a surprise. 
we can be prepared for that final crisis. Will you be surprised like the disciples? Or will you be prepared? Will you say with me, by God's grace, I will commit to daily Bible study and spirit of prophecy study and daily prayer. Is that your commitment with mine? If it is, will you just bow your heads with me and let's pray. Dear Lord, it's much easier for us to commit than it is for us to persevere and do. We need your help. We have enemies within and without that would take us away from your word and get us distracted with this or that or the other thing. Please help us. Preserve us. Transform us. Give us the mind of Jesus, the character of Jesus. May we love him, see him. May he be before our eyes continuously through the day, in our work, in our study, in our interactions with our spouses, with our children. Lord, make us like Jesus. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer. In Christ's name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.